Welcome to the Product Quest Podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-hosts Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today we welcome our very special guest, Mr. Dan Adams. Dan is the founder and president of the AIM Institute and is author of New Product Blueprinting, the Handbook for B2B Growth. He's a chemical engineer by training and the holder of many patents, including a listing in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Dan is a teacher to thousands of innovation practitioners, has coached hundreds, if not thousands, of innovation projects, and is a chief architect of Blueprinter Software, the tool that helps novice voice of customer practitioners to become effective as experts, and helps experts become as effective as masters. I should add that I work for Dan, and most importantly, he's my friend. Dan Adams, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Great. Thank you, Scott. And by the way, that was a very nice introduction. Did I ever mention how Mark Twain was introduced? <laughs> Please tell me. <laughs> this next speaker has never been in jail, and I don't know why. <laughs> so thank you. That was very kind, I thought. Thanks, Scott. You know, of course, we're going to get into new product blueprinting, all the inciting stuff that you're doing now. But let's go back a little bit first to your early years as an engineer. What about those experiences really sticks with you? Yeah, you know, it takes a while, at least for me, to figure out what, what I really enjoy doing. And what I found was when I was working on product development, that's what really floated my boat. When we could figure out what customers wanted, go in the lab. I, even when I was in marketing, Scott, I, I used to uh, roll up in my lab coat and some safety goggles, and I would go every Friday over to the lab, and I had a good buddy over there, and I would schedule a technical breakthrough, a little bit of a standing joke, every Friday afternoon, you know? And one day, we actually did it. I told people later, we used the J. Paul Getty formula of success, uh, rise early, work hard, strike oil. In other words, just dumb luck, you know? <laughs> And, but then we got, we got that product rolling and we launched it 10 months later. Market loved it. I thought, this is what I really enjoy doing. And then later in my career, I started coaching a lot of other teams. And I thought to myself, I thought I like this even better. It's one thing to do it myself, but to be able to coach teams and help them do it, man, that was exciting. So that, that was kind of my journey in this whole new product development area. That was a big moment. Is the product still in the market? It has ended, yes, it is. And it ended up selling tens of millions of dollars. It was highly, highly successful. And so that's that's when it kind of taught me, it all starts with the customer needs. We, we did understand what the customers wanted and we just kept working at that until we figured out how to solve it. Well, the Akron area, Ohio, where you live is traditionally known for chemical and rubber manufacturing. How do you think that environment shaped your career or yourself individually or did it? Yeah. yeah, it did, actually. Yeah, I worked for a company called BF Goodrich Chemicals and uh, very much into polymers. And, you know, that doesn't sound maybe too exciting now, but I'm pretty old. So at the time, that was a little bit cutting edge, you know. And so we were able to do some things that hadn't been done before. Um, you know, also, and some of our listeners may find yourself in this boat. If you ever find yourself where you have a leading product in the marketplace, I think a good mental picture is, hey, we are at the tip of the of the of the of the, of the sword here, of the, you know, and and that means that there may be some really cool things we can do that haven't been done before. And I was fortunate enough to work in one of those product areas where we were the world leader. It was a water-based uh, thickener, and uh, you know that mental approach is like, hey, if it hasn't been done, it's probably because we haven't done it. So let's see what we can do. 
can be quite exciting. Hmm. Well, you've taught lots and lots of students now, uh, probably more than most college professors. What would you say are some of the keys of teaching adults and how, if any, is that, uh, how it off is that different than teaching, you know, children? Younger people. Oh, yes. Yeah. So de- teaching adults, uh, teaching B2B engineers and yeah. chemists and marketing people. You mean you mean the people who are already overworked, Scott, that don't have any time, that can barely keep up with their email That's- and their boss says to them, hey, you need to go learn this. And they don't. They have, but they nothing is taken off their plate. Th- are those the ones you mean? Ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I guess I guess a couple of principles. You know, the first one is let's figure out, do they need knowledge or skills? Mm. And as you know, when we work with clients, it's skills, right? I mean, how to how to do good voice of customer and so forth. And, you know, if it's just knowledge, you might be able to get some e-learning and some books and they might be able to pick it up. But if it's skills, they're going to have to get their hands dirty, no doubt. So that would be the first principle. Um, The second thing is they really are overworked. So you got to figure out a way to not make this extra work. So as you know, in our practice, what that means is we say, what project, what new product development project would you have worked on anyway? And let's go ahead and let's wrap these new skills around so you can do this project even better. So uh, it took us, gosh, 15 of our 17 years, I think, right, to break the code, but um, now what we do is we start with a couple half-day workshops and uh, get them started. And then we surround them with e-learning, with tools, with the knowledge center you built, Scott. Uh, but most importantly, we assign a dedicated AIM coach to them. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of hold their hands. We used to have coaches just drop in every now and then, and, and they would catch the team after they made a mistake. But we've learned it's a little bit better to have the team, the coach there, and catch them before they make the mistake. So I think that's probably it, you know, have them work hands-on, real projects, surround them with especially coaching skills. Well, the big thing yeah. I heard there is just going from knowledge to skills. And so yeah. what yeah. It, just you alluded to some of that. It sounds like sounds like part of that is getting started actually working on something real. Is that right? It is. It absolutely is getting started working on. You know, the other thing that comes in here is I'm thinking about it a little bit. <clears throat> When you have somebody that you would like to learn new material, really, there's two things. If I'm the learner, my two questions are, why should I learn this? And the second one is, how do I do this? And so we've also learned if you jump in on the how and you don't convince them of the why, you're really not going to get them. So when we start with those two half-day workshops, we're putting a lot, and you know this, we're putting a lot into the why. Now, sometimes you get a few people like they already know why and they're like, come on, give me the how. But we can't leave behind the people who haven't figured out the why yet because we'll never get them again. So you start with that, you win them over, and then you dive into the how. And then it's, again, a lot of skills. Let them try it. They saw you do it and they thought they knew how. Then they tried it themselves and they realized they didn't. So now they have to work at it some more. Yeah, I want to come back around to blueprinting. But first... Uh, something that a lot of people probably don't know. I certainly do. You wrote a book on parenting called The Child Influencers, Restoring the Lost Art of Parenting, which we use in my house. Uh, we were referencing this <laughs> week, by the way. Is there anything in the content or the approaches when you put that book together that relates to the innovation process or that you use today? Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't really linked those together. You know, we, um, we actually homeschooled our, all of our children. 
And so, you know, probably unbeknownst to me until a clever podcast, uh, you know, in, interrogator asked me, you know, we, we probably did bring a lot of those principles into our business because a lot of it, you know, we, we actually developed when I was doing this with the kids, we actually developed uh, 300 activities to do with them. So it was very much hands on learning. In fact, I just did one of them in the basement. With the, we have 10 grandkids. And you may want to try this one, Scott. Tell your wife it's it's called dust explosion. Okay, you put some cornstarch in the end of the straw and you blow it into a flame and it blows up. It's really cool. Singe eye. No, it's not that bad, but it's really fun. But I guess <laughs> coming back to your original question, I think it's the hands-on learning that you know we did a lot as parents that we realize that probably stays with us as we become adults as well. You need to learn things hands-on. I thought the lesson was we needed to bring fire and explosion. I was, <laughs> I was that jumping too. in deep. <laughs> that too. <laughs> wow, 300. Yeah, that, that's, that certainly makes sense. I'll just, I'll mention one of the, the, the so we homeschool our children as well. We, you did it before it was cool. Now it's, it's much more common. Now, of course, there weren't the resources available, but just this, the read aloud is one of the things you encouraged yeah. me early on to do read books aloud to the kids. And one of the things that I learned is I, I enjoy, I enjoy reading them aloud and following the stories as well. Yeah, um, there's something about read. Maybe this is something, you know, so there's definitely a theme, I think, to Dan, to your career in life is teaching and getting other people to learn things. The, um, and I've found that in reading a book aloud, it, you absorb it in ways that are, they're not exactly the same. They're something no. you're hearing yourself or you're, you're having to process it in your brain uh, in a way you wouldn't. But I find that I've, I um, immerse myself in the story a little more by, by, by reading it aloud. It's almost like a muscle. You know, at first, the reading isn't as natural. But the more you do it and the more your kids do it, the more they enjoy it. And there's no better gift you can. Well, I don't know. There's probably some. But there are a few gifts you can give your kids better than the love for learning and reading. And the difference is if you watch a movie, you're watching the director's imagination. If you read a book, you're using your imagination. Also, some of the best books, they tell you what the protagonist is thinking. You can't see that in a movie. So, yeah, this is way off base, but my advice would be to parents out there, turn that darn TV off and start, start small, but start with books you enjoy. So whether you're blowing up stuff in a basement or you're reading books, the key principle is do stuff that you as a parent will enjoy and your kids will just magically pick up whatever you're enjoying. You know, but I really see this is not off. I see this as very consistent because, you know, it's, yeah. look at the innovation process. Like we can talk about that, what that is. Um, but the, but it's one thing for me as a practitioner to execute it. It's a whole nother level. It's many other levels beyond that to get somebody else to be able to execute and beyond that, to get it ingrained in a company. So I mean, yeah. these, these experience, these, and so you've got these children, you're trying to, you know, may not quite understand the why or the usefulness in your reading. So I, I really, I see a lot of, a lot of connections there. I'll tell you what's funny, uh, reading the books to my kids, a lot of times, you know, they look like they're not paying attention at all. So we, we, mm -hmm. we've, we've allowed them to like fidget. Like, I mean, I don't know. We, we give them things to fidget with, they can color, or give them Legos for play with. And you would, you would, an observer would say, well, they're not tracking that at all, but 100% they are. And I'll ask a question of, I can't think of an example right now. And they, they can anticipate it. But well, we read, yeah. we read, um, we read Lord of the Rings last year. And I said, oh, oh yeah, Gollum, yeah. is Gollum good or is he bad? And I got a very nuanced answer 
in response from that nine-year-old about that didn't fully answer. And it, it is a bit ambiguous. It was, it was as good an answer as anybody could have had. And I'm always, yeah. and I'm, so that was a learning for me when they don't appear, you know, you're, you're watching color, you're watching them do something and you assume they're not, they're absorbing a lot more than they are or can. And, you know, one of the bits of advice, it may have been from you, it may have been from the, your book or maybe somewhere else was, was, um, gosh, I forget. It was to, um, oh, it was to not dumb it down when you're reading right. to not, to not oversimplify, let the big words yeah. hang out there. And I do a little, a little, little bit sometimes, uh, what yeah. would be like a very British word, for example, I can't mm -hmm. think of an example of capital. There's one like, so in the eight, 1800s, well, that's a capital plan that meant that it was wonderful. It's just not, a, so sometimes I'll, I'll do things like that, but yeah, uh, for the yeah, I have to dumb it down when I'm reading for myself, but beyond that, I don't want to dumb it down anymore. <laughs> I was reading Rudyard Kipling's uh, Captain Courageous once when I our girls were young for three hours. We were in front of the fireplace, one little head on each shoulder. And that's pretty thick reading if you get into Rudyard Kipling at that time. But yeah, but I think coming back to your point, though, I think whether it is um, us helping our children succeed in something like learning or whether it is helping a team succeed in new product development, there's almost two levels here. One is my personal success. Can I develop a new product, let's say? And the next level up is, can I help other people do that? <clears throat> and I remember once when I was on a team and we had a great success and I was preparing little uh, trophies to hand out in an award ceremony. And it dawned on me, I was getting more excited about handing out the trophies then I didn't care if anybody said what I did about it. it. Didn't matter to me. What I really cared about was getting these people the recognition that they deserved and seeing the look on their face that they had maybe for the first time in their lives had developed a product that, that was wildly successful. So I think that that's, yeah. that's the motivation for me. I think it's the same for you, Scott, seeing others succeed in this whole endeavor. For sure. Yeah. Right. So it's I like, mean, that, it's always right, nice. Go ahead, Jan. Oh, sorry, that's always a nice experience if somebody has a success and you're part of the reason why. I mean, that's kind of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I maybe right. ju just get a little bit back on this? I, I, I wonder about this. I mean, you've obviously you've coached a lot of, a lot of, of a, lot, a lot of people, or taught a lot of people. How does, I mean, like let's say a skeptic could ask, does reading really work? Do people still read, especially adults? Like how can mm. you, is that a method that works? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, it does. But here's the thing. Now, for children, <clears throat> so there's two things here. One is, you know, as a parent, uh, our children will pick up what we're excited about. So, you know, if if I got into hieroglyphics, you know, then <laughs> my kids are going to get into hieroglyphics. So do we have a little bit of a, a little bit of a luxury there as parents? And if we think reading is important or something else, that's what they'll pick up. But but bring it back to new product um, development mm. and learning new skills in that area. What we find is everybody learns a little differently. Yeah. There are very few people who don't learn by doing it themselves and hands on. But that's why we will have. Um, we'll have e-learning. So people will go through a series of 31 e-learning modules because some people learn that way. We have this massive knowledge center that Scott created because some people will wait till they get stumped and they'll go do a search on the thing. Uh, we'll have other people mm -hmm. who, you know, will go into the software and they'll figure out how to do it themselves. So I think you make a really good point, Jan. Everybody learns a little bit differently and you need to provide those different venues so they can kind of yeah. zoom in on what they need. Yeah. 
And you mentioned that some our children pick up on what we're excited about. I think that works with adult learners as well. I do too. Yeah. Right. If, and I think I mean you're a fantastic uh, lecturer. I think one of the reasons is that you're just so enthusiastic about the topic. It just it comes through. And I, I and the um it's funny. I I am too. But I have to I have to remind my. It's like. Um, what is it? A wise person told me about listening. There's, there's, uh, it, it, the wise person's Dan, by the way. It's there's, <laughs> are you listening? And do you look like you're listening? You know, so it's, I'm always excited about the topic, but when I'm personally presenting, I could, I need to remind myself, do I look like I'm excited? It might <laughs> well, you not know, always be the same thing. Well, you know, Scott, they say small minds are easily <laughs> amused and I'm, I'm easily excited. So <laughs> there's the parallel. <laughs> <laughs> what I find quite nice and is quite counterintuitive is the fact that you say you have to teach something that you are interested in. And I think that you ask most people and they would say, well, the problem with, with education is that we're uh, teaching stuff that the students are not interested in. So yeah. we have to yeah. make it more interesting for the students. And I, I find it very nice that you, I, and you're probably right, actually. I, I mean, I, it makes sense. Well, it's interesting. You should, if you teach something you're interested in, that they'll be interested in it too. Yeah, it's interesting, Jonathan. You know, when I'm on the uh, the treadmill in the morning, I watch some videos, and there's this thing that uh, it's called the Great Courses, a teaching company, and they have these professors, and they pick the best professors from around the country to give on a topic. And the one common denominator, whether they're talking about Egyptian pyramids or biochemistry, it doesn't matter what the topic is. The one thing that's extremely obvious is that lecturer is really excited about their topic. And I think that that comes through. So I, I think that is a very good principle you pointed out. Find something that you're interested in and then help others get excited and understand it as well. We probably should come around to new product blueprinting. Oh yeah, there is that, isn't there? Let's talk that. <laughs> so for those who don't know, could you describe uh, new product blueprinting, this process at a high level? Yeah, it's really the front end of innovation for B2B companies. And so when I say the front end of innovation, that's the real purpose. So if you have a stage gate process, right? You got the front end, you're trying to figure out what customers want. Then you go through a gate and then you go to the middle stage, you usually call the development stage. And then you go into another gate and you have the launch phase. That's like three stages, but they're usually five or it could be anything. So when we say the front end, it's whatever you do before you go to that money gate. And if you go through the money gate, you start spending the big bucks and you go in the lab and you push back the frontiers of modern science, okay? So blueprinting lives there in the front end, but it's only for B2B companies because our belief is B2B customers are highly knowledgeable, they're interested, they're objective, they have foresight. They can tell you a lot about their needs if you know how to ask. So the heart of that front-end work are two rounds of interviews, a qualitative interview called discovery. You go out and do maybe six, eight, 10 of those. And you go back and you do a quantitative interview called preference. The first one's divergent. What else, Mr. Customer, do you want? The last one is convergent. Let's converge on the things that are A, important, and B, not currently satisfied. Because the only thing the customer is going to pay you a premium for is something that's important that they're not getting. So that's basically the heart of the blueprinting process. And as you know, Scott, we're trainers. So you know we don't do it. Well, every now and then you do because you're really good at this. But for the most part, we try to get our customers to say, okay, teach me how to do it. 
and then uh, we teach them so they get really good at it. <laughs> How did the process come about, if you can remember the early days of, of creating it? <laughs> it came up, I don't think I ever told you this story. It came about because I didn't understand something. I had a good buddy who was, uh, this is when I was working in a chemical company. He brought in an article on road mapping and he just threw it on my desk and said, Adams, you gotta do something with this. Okay, Sudhir, okay, you know? So I read the article and I don't know if I'd had too much caffeine or what was going on, but so I started thinking about this and little by little, I developed this methodology and then, but I hadn't tried it. So I went to one of my best buddies who was in sales. I'd known him for years, a guy named Bob Valentin. I said, Bob, do you have a customer we could try this out on? I've made these little digital sticky notes in, uh, in Excel. It's kind of goofy, but I just want to see if it would work. Said, yeah, yeah, come on, come on. So we went out to the East Coast and went to a big uh, company that, that was uh, a customer of ours. And I thought, I don't know if this is going to work, but at least it's me. Bob's got to deal with it, not me. Right? <laughs> so they, they get in there and I start recording what they wanted on sticky notes and and we used up all the time. And the guy goes, come on, let's go down the cafeteria. Can you stay after lunch? Yeah, I can stay. We went down, we got some sandwiches, we came back up and we were there like four hours. They just kept going and going. And I'll never forget, we were walking out to the parking lot. Bob looks at me and he goes, Dan goes, I've been calling on these guys for 10 years. I heard stuff here I've never heard before. So that was the beginning of it. And we started playing with it and optimizing it. And finally, we got to a certain point and I told my boss, I wanted to uh, quit, but I wanted to get the severance package. So I said, could you get me fired? And that's a whole nother story. So if our <laughs> listeners want to know how to get fired, we can go into that sometime as well. But that was the beginning of the whole thing, Scott. <laughs> so, so this was an existing client, sorry, just to specify, this was an existing client of yours that you had Yes, been it was an existing with. client. Yeah, right. Uh, we've been, they've been a client for a long, long time but we all of a sudden learned all this stuff that we didn't know they wanted using this goofy method that I had come up with. But can I jump in here? You're saying this goofy method of using sticky notes. And how is that goofy? Why is it, why was it, is it new? Can you describe it a little bit? Yeah, so I don't think I realized- By the way, I don't think it's that goofy, but okay. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I'll tell you what the method is and I'll tell you why I think it works. And I don't think I had this figured out at the time. The method is basically you project up on a screen or on a Zoom or Teams call what looks like a bunch of little, you know, 3M post-it notes, okay? That's what it looks like digitally, okay? And they're different colors. And so the yellow ones are what problems are you having? So when they say, let's say you're interviewing a paint producer. Well, we need better hiding power. Then you start probing. We develop a lot of probing methods. Well, where do you need it? When do you need it? Can you describe what you get today? Then we ask some why questions. Well, how would that impact you? Anything else? Then here's the magic. When you're done with that sticky note on hiding power, you say, what other problems are you seeing? And now you have no idea what the customer is going to say next. So they are leading yeah. the interview. And up till this point, all VOC had been, okay, my question number 11 is, my question number 12 is, right? Yeah. So now we're going from a customer-led interview to, I'm sorry, from a supplier-led interview to a customer-led. Why sticky notes though? Coming back to your question, Jan. I think what happened was when people see sticky notes, there's this little Pavlovian response. Oh, I'm in a brainstorming session. It's my job to fill in those sticky notes. 
Now, yeah. we don't call brainstorming because we don't want to come up with solutions. We want to come up with outcomes and results. But I think the combination of letting them lead, having it look like something they're supposed to generate ideas, um, and uh, you know, letting them kind of you know, and, and visually displaying it so they yeah. can see what you're recording. The combination of those three things creates an environment that you'll never have if you're the salesman sitting across the desk saying, so what else do you want? You know? Yeah, yeah of course, customers can't tell you what they want because you haven't given the, the proper environment for it. So yeah. setting up the right environment, I think, is the key here. And and what, in your opinion, was the the key difference between this approach and what you had been doing previously? What do you think was the key thing? So I had tried a lot of different methods up till then. Um, I had I had actually gone around and benchmarked a lot of companies, including 3M. And I'll never forget what the 3M folks when they were the best. Okay? Hence the stickies. Hence, well, yes. So that was probably subliminal, Jonathan. <laughs> I came back years later, but you're probably exactly right. I'll never forget what the, uh, the, the 3M guy said. I said, what's your secret? He goes, we just figure out what our customers' problems are. Then we work on those. Like, brilliant, brilliant. Okay. But uh, unfortunately, it took me a long time to get to that in, in a practical way. So I was following other methods where you would go in and you'd ask a bunch of questions. And so I would do that. And I still remember I, I had a big spreadsheet. And so the rows were all the companies I was interviewing. And the columns were all the questions I was asking. I created mm -hmm. Excel spreadsheet wallpaper. I mean, this thing was enormous, right? And I remember looking at that thing saying, I have no idea what to do with this. And so all the other methods I tried up till here just weren't working. So it's probably going back to the J. Paul Getty formula of success. You know, this one stumbled into it and it worked. So then we just kept building on that. Yeah. I saw it. I, I remember seeing in in other companies seeing these exactly those. Well, it's now it's their mirror boards or whatever, but exactly the same thing. Yeah. Thousands of different informations. All the questions are pre-written. And then you stand in front of the two meter wall. And now what? Like, now what? Exactly. <laughs> it looks beautiful. I mean, in terms of aesthetics, it's beautiful. But now yeah. what? <laughs> You know, Scott is our master of doing surveys. So what, what we've kind of, we have a little principle, whether it's a survey or whether you're doing a process like VOC, you never want to ask somebody a question unless you know what you're going to do with the answer. You need to think ahead. What am I going to do with the answers I get? And a lot of people go out and do, do VOC, have no idea what to do with it. Scott, I did some research. He actually created the survey for this. It was brilliant. And we asked people on 12 different VOC skills, what was most important? And the one that came out was prioritize. And it's for exactly yeah. what you're saying, Jan, people get all this stuff and they don't know what to, how to prioritize it. And that's yeah. where the second round of interviews we call preference. We say how important on a scale of one to 10, how satisfied on a scale of one to 10. And then we know what to do with that data afterwards. That's the key. Yeah. I think that survey so, is accessible, right? So the yeah. survey is on the website and you can get it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Just to get back to the method. So you were saying you have three different colors, uh, types of sticky notes, right? Mm -hmm. Three different colors. Was that what you yes, were saying? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so the, the first question is 
um, what are your problems? And then you said you ask, okay, once they've answered, I guess that goes on the first uh, set of sticky notes. Yeah, the correct? yellow ones, you might get 10, you no. might get 20, you never know, but yeah, they keep going until they run out. That's right. And then once they finished, you ask them for additional problems. Was that, is that Then what you say, once they run out of problems, you say, okay, that's great on the yellow sticky notes. And we got some green ones here. Let me ask it this way. What would your ideal world look like? And then they run. Now there's still outcomes, okay? And sometimes, you know, it's kind of funny. They might say hiding power is a problem on a yellow sticky note. And on the green, they might say, oh, my ideal world would be to have great hiding power. It's just coming at it a different way, right? And then the third, the blue sticky notes, we call these triggered ideas. And we say, let me put out something that might trigger some more thinking. We borrowed this from, I borrowed this from some people that, that we used to bring in when I was in a company that would do brainstorm facilitation. And a trigger method is something that gets your brain thinking in a fresh new way. So we might put like an Ishikawa or a fishbone diagram up that has all these trends. We might say to the customer, as you're looking at all these demographic and technology trends and so forth and economic, does that give you any other ideas? And they might go, yeah, this one here on labor shortages, you know, we need a better training program here for our paint contractors. You never know what they're gonna generate, but that's the third one. Again, just more outcomes, but you're coming at it in a different way. You know, it's interesting the the commonalities in lots of different innovation methods. You end up in a lot of same places. I took I took a course in the early 90s from a gentleman, Min Ambassador, who's a longtime uh, guy with P&G. And that was the first time I ever heard, uh, was exposed to brainstorming rules of that and divergence mm-hmm. and convergence and those patterns. Uh, and also what um, he had also a method that basically what I sort of stole later or used or what, you know, to understand different levels of jobs, something that you know, we could talk about, but you, but we have all these different methods, but there's so many commonalities, um, to whether it's the brainstorming and where you're reserving judge, you know, reserving judgment and then applying judgment to brainstorming is very much analogous to with the customer, you know, you're reserving judgment from them. Every, everything's a good answer. And you're just like, yep. oh, ideas are good ideas mm-hmm. too. Now applying judgment, we have to do that later. It's, I, I do this a lot. I don't really have a question. It's just an observation, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's, it's amazing though, these patterns, a fact that, yeah. that, and, um, you know, a lot of us can begin as innovation practitioners, learning a method or whatever, then you learn mm-hmm. a different method and a different method. And there's just so many commonalities but, but between all of them it's like all roads sort of lead you to the same place and dan you mentioned that when you were you started with your voice of the customer i think you followed a pattern that a lot of other folks do me included where initially it was almost you felt successful in just doing the work oh i interviewed a customer mm-hmm. I, i'm i'm doing the mm-hmm. work i'm doing but then you get back and you don't realize it's, it's not as useful as you want it to it's like you know you need to tweak the process i think that's a common uh, mm-hmm. pattern certainly it is for myself well and the other thing scott your your point on these common patterns is spot on because you know human behavior is human behavior you know mm-hmm. uh, we don't have to get into all the psychology behind it but you know you and i've talked about this the landmark book on selling is spin it was written by mm-hmm. neil uh, rackham you know of Hathaway institute and the spin stands for situation problems implication and needs needs uh, application. And so, you know, it didn't dawn on us till years after we had developed our methodology, but 
We start our interviews with a couple current state questions just to warm them up, icebreakers. Well, that's the situation. Then we get into the problems, you know, and that's it. But then we ask for the what and why questions. Why is that? Well, that's the implication. And then we narrow it down to what the actual needs are and create something called an outcome statement, which we should give credit to Tony Olick for. That was something we borrowed from Tony. But again, these basic principles, they will apply. So whether you're a salesperson or you're trying to work on a new product, a lot of the principles really apply across the board here. And you got something else you said. You, you mentioned um, when you sort of had the, the method worked out. It sounded like you had that first interview that was really like in sort of the, your new way of looking at the world and that you were just... I don't know if surprise is the right word, but maybe maybe pleasantly surprised. Oh, but well sure I was. <laughs> you know, that, I think that's also for new practitioners. There's this feeling that, well, I'm going to annoy my customer. They don't. They're not going to really like this session. Oh, yeah. But the truth yeah. is, if the scope is set well, meaning that it's a topic of interest to them, it's something they're trying to do, um, then they love this opportunity to share and it, almost regardless of, per, of how introverted extroverted you know for them when they have this opportunity to feel listened to to share these challenges i mean 100 percent is pretty big number but i i but something close to 100 percent of the time it's a really positive experience for the interviewee uh yes. as they open up and that's that's something that it's, you know, I, I, you know, when we're, when we're teaching, I tell new practitioners that, but they look at me askew. They don't believe me. Um, yeah. but it's, it's true. I mean, I remember doing interviews with John Deere and we would visit with folks at their properties. Now, if you have, you know, whatever, hundred acres and you're moving in the middle of nowhere, you're not used to a lot of visitors, you know? And so we would go there and we, yet we'd have this, be there for a couple hours talking with them. And by the end, when we would arrive, you know, we had our notebooks and they were looking at us very suspiciously and, you know, kind of askew. What are these crazy kids doing? Two hours later, oh, call us the next time you're in town. You know, they weren't. They're, they're really getting a little too uh, close to us. But it's been an endearing experience uh, to them. Yeah, let us know. Ma, I'll put a roast on for you next time you're back in town. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. But you're absolutely right, yeah. Scott. I mean, turns out people like being listened to. Who knew? Yeah. Right? Right. I mean, yeah. uh, you know. You go in there, if you say, I have my questions or I have my hypothesis I want to validate, well, that's not too exciting. If you go in and you say, but we really want to know what's important to you and we're going to listen hard and we're going to ask intelligent questions. And by the way, we just think you're absolutely fascinating, sir or ma'am. Turns out they really like that. And yeah. you're right. I was a little surprised. Somebody defined exhilaration as that time uh, after you come up with a great idea and just before you realize what's wrong with it. <laughs> so there was there was that exhilaration, but you know we're we're still pretty pretty excited about it, aren't we? For sure, <laughs> still having fun with it. <laughs> but I feel like it really takes. I mean, it, that's from on the part of the person who's leading the, or actually, well, who's leading the interview in brackets. I mean, it you're yeah. describing it exactly the other way around, so that the customer is leading the interview, which I think is more correct. Yeah. But it it takes, I think, at least in my experience, it takes a lot to to really be able to abstain from your judgment from what you want to get and just and and i mean we say well i just want to understand the but really doing this is it takes a lot of effort i think it's for for quite a lot of people this is this is new so well, you, 
you're, you're spot on, Yanni. One of the things we have to coach pretty hard on is sometimes people like to ask these long questions to demonstrate that they're really smart, right? Yes. And, and they say, well, Dan or Scott, I don't want to just say, why is that important? Or how does that happen? They'll think I'm dumb. <clears throat> and I want to lean forward. I have to think of a better way of doing this. I want to lean forward and whisper in their ear. They're, they don't care about you. <laughs> They're not thinking yes. about you, man. They're thinking about themselves. Forget about yeah. you. You know, yeah. they want, if you can go in and set them up as the master and you are the student, that's yes. the scenario that you're looking for here. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they don't care about you is a pretty good life lesson, <laughs> even beyond <laughs> innovation. You know, I think. <laughs> It well, can help I can, people actually. Yeah, I can. I can tell you. That, you know, now that I'm at this age, I can tell you the story. There was an old man who said, "You know, when I was a young man, I worried about what people thought about me, and then I got to middle age, and you know what? I stopped worrying about what they thought about me. And now that I'm an old man, I realized they weren't thinking about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, That's and there's, exactly. there's a lot of truth to that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. There is. But I think there is one point I think where I immediately connect to this, this not being you as an interview, you don't have to show your expertise. I mean, exactly. we have, so we show different, I mean, when we do this, we show different kinds of, there are different kinds of questions. And I think you, you highlighted this nicely. So you're probing questions and why questions. And we have a set that we specifically, we call them fool's questions. Oh, like, yeah. so questions where you, I mean, you play dumb less effectively. Right. But, but where you really, I mean, we, we ask people, how do you know that you're hungry? Hmm. I mean, yeah. Which is a pretty stupid question in bracket, but right. I mean, but for the purpose of the project, that's really relevant. It is. And then well, it's not about yeah. you or your expertise, but, but you play even more. I mean, you have to be relevant in the sense of, I want to understand that person, but it's okay right. to ask something that apparently is obvious, which usually most often it's not. Well, you know, Jan, to your point, Scott and I have observed this as we've coached many, many teams. Oftentimes, the moderator will say, you know, I thought I knew why they wanted it, but just in case I asked one, I asked one more question, why is that important? And they said, they gave me something totally different than what I was imagining. Mm. So sometimes we recommend, especially for teams getting started, you know, if you've got a technology person who's like the guru on this, and you've got the salesperson who's been calling in this account for 10 years. They probably aren't your best moderator. Find somebody from the office who is not as familiar, who has permission yeah. to ask the dumb questions. When I was in marketing, yeah. you know, the more experienced salespeople, we'd be driving, you know, in the rental car to the interview to the meeting, was maybe an interview, and the salesperson would lean over and say, ask them these questions, because I can't ask them anymore. And so yeah. that's really what we want to yeah. do here. Yeah. yeah. So in that case, so even salesman, though, you, sorry, okay. go ahead. I was going to say, so in that case, the salesman really did have something he wanted to know, but just didn't yeah. feel like he could, or he would, he, he would, couldn't ask anymore. Yeah. He couldn't, he's supposed to know. He would have been yeah. embarrassed to ask. So he needed somebody else to ask the fool's questions or, to yeah, yeah, point. Yeah. He needed a fool and I was there. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to say, so you need to play the fool as you ask the questions but of course, you need to be aware of what the people are saying. Yeah. And there's a lot of work that goes into analyzing what they say afterwards, of course. But I think yeah. it's also important to be able to, to parse what the person is saying 
as you're listening to him also or her. I, that's and a great... my question, I, I had a, yeah, sorry, ahead. I had a kind of bit of a maybe trick question or difficult question. Sounds like a silly question, but it's, so what, how do you look out for problems? For instance, you, you're talking about identifying the problems. Well, what in your view would be a problem? that a customer might come up with? What, what, what does it mean, a problem? Yeah, great, great. So let's go back to the example of um, we make paint ingredients and let's say our customer is a paint producer. The problems fall into two areas. They're really outcomes is what they are, but we will call them problems because that's people like to talk about their problems. Uh, Lily Tomlin once said, mankind invented language to satisfy his deep longing to complain. So we love to talk about our problems. That's why we start with that, okay? So let's imagine you're interviewing, you know, a paint producer and say, what kind of problems are you having? And you'll give them the scope, production and sale of some of the glass paint. And so it could be a process-related problem or a product-related problem. So a process-related problem of, oh man, we're having a hard time getting these pigments, you know, into the system, you know? We're having a hard, we need to increase the throughput of our manufacturing. We got to cut down defects. We're using too much labor here. Those are all process related to make the paint, but it could be product related problems. We don't have enough hiding power. You know, we're getting a lot of fading. We need better UV resistance. Oh man, when people get crayon marks on that paint, it's a terrible thing to get it cleaned off. We need crayon removal to be better. So all the problems for B2B, will fall into either customer's processes or customer's products. So those are, those are them. And we don't really care which they are at the time. We're just, but when we hear crayon removal, oh, well, tell me, describe that for me a little bit more. That's a what question. Where do you see that? When do you see it? How often does it happen? How long does it take to clean it off now? Those are all what questions. Then we move into the why questions. Well, how does that impact you? Oh, you're getting a lot of returns. How many? And boom, 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 and off we go. Then before we're done with that sticky note, we say, is there anything else we should know about these crayon remarks before we move on? No? Okay. What other problems are you having? And now we're on to, mm -hmm. I need better throughput on the machine. That's, it's very, here's the cool thing about it. I remember once a fellow in the UK, he'd been out on like five or six interviews and he was just beaming at one of our sessions or coaching session. He goes, Dan, he says, I could go into any interview in any industry on the planet and do this now. And what he was saying was, yes, he needs to get the terminology and all that, but it's not about his questions. He does not have to come up with a brilliant list of questions. He has learned how to brilliantly probe whatever the customer yeah. comes up with. That's the cool yeah. part of this. I think that yeah. is a breakthrough for an interviewer when they realize they don't have to have all the answers. In fact, they shouldn't have all the answers. <laughs> they, they, they put a lot of pressure on themselves to share expertise. I want to ask you a question about something that I think is left out of a lot of innovation processes. Let's, let's take your hiding power example and just to yeah. keep it simple, let's imagine we can measure it. There's a hiding powder o meter and it goes from yeah. one to a thousand or whatever. And so, yeah. and so uh, customers, you know, we let's just say we've learned it's very important to improve the hiding power it's very low satisfied um so but something is often left out of most methods is well if i take it up 10 percent, does that matter five percent yeah because presumably if i improve performance 
usually, I mean, there may be some magic or alchemy, but most of the time that does mean adding costs to prove informants. So when that yeah. example, so that leads to the engineering question, how much can I improve it? How would you address that? Yeah. So Scott, you, as you know, you've hit on something which is quite fascinating to us. So in the world of B2B, we're just getting, we're trying to get our clients all to the point where, and our clients are doing good, we're trying to get B2B industry to the point where they at least know what to work on. We know that we call it a market satisfaction gap, right? This outcome is really important. It's not satisfied. We ought to work on it. And so we declare victory and we go home in probably 90% of the cases. Probably only 10% of our clients, even today, understand the next level. Once we get them all up to that level, the next level is this magic, which you're referring to, which we've never seen in any other methodology on the planet. It takes place in preference interviews. And here's how it goes. After you ask them for a one to 10 score on hiding power, how important, and a one to 10 score on satisfaction, how important, we have three more really critical questions. The first one is, how would you know if you had good hiding power? And they might have a thing where they dilute it to this and they put it on this pattern in the lab and they can see through and how many codes, who knows what the test is, okay? And then we say, now using that methodology, at what point would you consider it to be barely acceptable? And at what point would you consider yourself to be totally satisfied? And they might say, well, using this diluted thing with this checkered pattern, yada, 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 you know, if, if, I, if it's more than five codes, I got a problem, okay? And what would be totally satisfied? Well, if I could get one code, even with this diluted thing, I'd be totally satisfied. Now, what have we done here? We have created a satisfaction ruler, okay? The five mm. correlates to barely acceptable. The 10 correlates to totally satisfied. Now that we know how customers measure how good is good enough, we actually don't even need a prototype to lob at them later because we are now modeling their behavior. So think about this. B2B customers can go to guessing what customers want. Then they can move up to understanding. The highest level is they can model what customers want. They can completely in their lab replicate the customer experience. Now, very few companies do this, but it's hugely powerful. And you actually had an example mm. on noise levels that actually helped me understand why this is so important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's one. I think this, how much do we improve is something that's it's a part of new product blueprinting that is I don't know if I've ever seen it in another method. Funny, Dan, when I was at John Deere, I guess similar to you, I had my own hand, own cobbled method in which I tackled that also at Excel. I had never seen it anywhere until I saw it in your process. I mean, of course, yours was much more refined and matured and had a lot more behind it, but I was trying to get at the same, same thing. But the big breakthrough that I, that, uh, from, that I learned from you is this um, locking the scale point at this barely acceptable so on the barely acceptable level, whatever that is, and then there's the um, totally satisfied. And if we can understand the performance of those numbers, well, we know there's a range we have to be in. So, so the noise example I'll refer to is um, at John Deere, um, when you have a cab tractor, uh, one of the challenges with a cab tractor is noise. It gets very loud and um, they can be designed that you can design it in advance to sort of be quieter. And if they don't do a good job, then they end up stuffing foam in every every compartment. It's not a very elegant uh, solution. So what you have is you have sound engineers 
and every day we might we might have to hire some of those to help with our podcast but we have these sound engineers and every day when they get up they get up in the morning like now my job is to make this cab tractor quieter and they go to design and they go to think and from the time they get up to the time they go to bed they're making the cab quieter and quieter well as it's getting quieter and quieter you know at there's some noise level beyond which like the customer doesn't care Right. It's still, it's still, so, so if we give out 85 decibels, that's about the number your hearing's getting damaged. Uh, so we'll presume you want it lower than that. But then as it gets quieter and quieter and quieter, uh, there's some level where you pass this barely acceptable and you're, you, you're making the uh, tractor even quieter. And so if you're driving cost, you're literally destroying value. You're literally destroying value by making it because you're making it more expensive. And in the example of a tractor, it's actually worse than that because it turns out customers expect some level of sound. They, there's something satisfying about noise. So they're actually disturbed. And maybe that's something they would get over in time if, if they got recalibrated. But, but I never found this anywhere in any other method, this very important question of, well, let me, let me back up. So with a normal VOC, yeah. when you finish, you're going to learn, I need to improve something. I need to make this quieter. But what's missing from virtually, I think anything I could ever think of, how much, how much do I make it quieter? Um, and then that's super, because that's what your engineers are looking to you for. They're like, oh, I can stuff a bit of foam here, but do I need to make it 10%, 50%, 100%? And, and what is it? And that's one of the things I, I personally really appreciate uh, about blueprinting. And the funny yeah. thing is, Scott, is, you know, we used to try to teach all of that and we would just overwhelm our clients. So we've gone to the point where if we could just get them understanding customer needs, importance and satisfaction and working on the right stuff, we declare victory and go home in most of the cases. Right. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating is how long will it be before BDB companies really do everything they could do? I mean, it's not that hard what you and I just described. Will it be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? I mean, I'll probably be retired. Maybe you'll, you'll get be the one who's teaching people how to do this last part of modeling, you know, the behavior. But, you know, as long as people are moving forward, um, you know, we feel like we're doing some good. But the point is, there's a lot that can be done in B2B. And most companies have not even begun to scratch the surface. Right. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. I mean, probably even this... Just thinking in terms of outcomes, thinking in terms of importance and satisfaction, already that is a, is a big, big step. But then I understand, I, I completely agree. This is very new to me, this part where you kind of retranslate it back into almost an engineer. I, I figure, it yeah. ha I mean, it, it shows that there is an engineering background <laughs> in the methodology somewhere that you kind of retranslate this back into how can I then measure really didn't measure the then again the solution so first we are in needs we want to just mm -hmm. understand it but then again it jumps back into measuring measuring the solution basically or how they measure the solution it's almost mind-boggling but when you think about it you are able to interview these really intelligent engineers and technical people and marketing people at your customers and you are able to learn enough that you know you can replicate their decision making in yeah. your own lab, in your own operation to an amazing extent. And I don't, I'm not saying you shouldn't do a prototype because the prototype is another way of refining it. It's also a great way of engaging customers more. So you can still do that. But the point is, it's silly to be lobbing prototypes at customers, hoping they like it when we can know what they want before they ever see the prototype. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think it's very unadvisable 
to try to take a prototype and try to figure out the problem. Yeah. I've seen companies do that where they kind of cobble it together <laughs> and then search for the problem with a prototype. And that gets you lost in all kinds of ways. <laughs> well, it's kind of like, you know, you guys are, of course, very familiar with minimum viable, pro, you know, pro, prototypes, yeah. you know, um, MVPs. And that's great for consumers. You know, you've got a limitless pool of testers with, with consumers. But, you know, I mean, think about it. Do I really, I mean, I talked to a guy at GE Aerospace and goes, yeah, my 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 BG customers aren't too interested in minimum viable um, jet aircraft engines, you know. Yeah, and they can barely fly. Like <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, some of the time. I mean, you know, so you don't want to frustrate your customers with yeah. silly prototypes, nor do you want to waste all of your engineers' time putting those silly prototypes together when you can have some intelligent conversations and really zoom in on what they want. It's kind of a yeah. kind of a goofy approach, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Very so, powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just have to tell this one quick little story about the prototype. The, um, the product I was on with John Deere, we, we, well, we have these biases in us. We don't even realize we had, right. And I had very good feedback. The customers wanted to use their tractors in low light conditions. And so I presumed that meant they wanted to mow at night. This particular tractor was a mowing tractor. They mowed more than anything else. So we took, so we did, uh, we got the prototypes made. We took them to Virginia. They're like, no, we don't need to mow at night. I'm like, okay. We went to Houston, Texas. They said, no, we don't need to mow at night. And I'm like, what have I done wrong? <laughs> we went to Wisconsin. They loved it. Went to Minnesota. They loved it. What, it what, what they wanted to do, they wanted to use their tractor to remove snow from their driveways before driving to work in the morning. And so there was a bias I had in my head, just based on where I grew up, I made an assumption, never realized I'd even made it and did not mm -hmm. know until, um, so that, and of course I get that story to tell for uh, in perpetuity now, but, um, <laughs> you, anyway, that was one thing that the prototype flushed out that had not, that it was an error in logic that I had made based on a, you yeah, know, my, my own my own lack of <laughs> no experience. Dan, you probably could have helped me out with that if <laughs> I did. Well, um, so you know, it seems like the you know we go from progression from being a practitioner to being a teacher, and then a teacher of a team to now like maybe the highest level is working with a company at you know at the highest level. Yeah. So imagine like a new CEO is hired, a large corporation. And you know needs wants to improve the innovation culture. What's what's step one? What or what advice would you provide them? Well, the first thing is get your goal squared squared away. You know, if your goal is to maximize shareholder wealth, please change it. I mean, Jack Welch, the master of this, later on said it's the dumbest idea in the world. And so, what I would recommend is be very clear-headed about what is the goal you want everybody in your organization to go after. And oh, you want me to suggest one? Well, funny, I do have one. <laughs> My <laughs> suggestion is your goal should be understand and meet customer needs better than others. I'll say it one more time: understand and meet customer needs better than others. If a company does this everything else will fall. I mean, maximizing shareholder wealth is a, is a lovely result. It's just a lousy goal. Your goal should be inspiring and should be actionable. Nobody knows, no employee knows how to raise earnings per share this quarter, but hopefully we can learn how to understand what our customers want in our target markets and we can meet those needs. So the first thing is getting that goal really squared away. The second thing is, 
be a little bit careful about your balance between results and capabilities. You know, Stephen Covey said a long time ago, we should balance P and PC. P was production, PC was productive capabilities. So let's just put it in different terms. Let's just call it results and capabilities, okay? And so what I find is, you know, in most businesses, especially in American businesses, there's this overriding intensity on results, but with not much of a focus on capabilities. So imagine the four of us decide we were going to go rock climb and we go out to El Capitan in Yosemite, okay? Now, none of us has the right equipment. Uh, you know, maybe we have a little paunch on you know, our tummies, you know. Uh, we don't have any skills whatsoever for climbing, but by golly, we want results, right? So how's that going to go for us? So any- You'll endeavor, get results. Yeah, you'll get results, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully you'll fall before you get too far up, right? And if you think about any endeavor, think about any endeavor you can imagine. It could be golf, it could be pole vaulting, it could be chess. Doesn't the winner, doesn't the champion focus on building their capabilities? The one exception is the business world. We're just going to focus on results every quarter. So that's what I would say is, you know, make sure you understand what your goal is and then build those capabilities in your organization. And then you have to ask which ones. Well, thankfully, Scott and I did some research and we said, what growth drivers of 24 growth drivers? It could be a stage gate process. It could be, it could be anything, it could be all kinds of things. Which of these are the ones that are most impactful for driving organic growth? Turns out the top three differentiators are pick the right market segments and concentrate your resources, do really, really good front-end work, and number three is get your customer interviews, which is really part of the subset of the front-end, really nail those. Those are the three biggest differentiators between the winners and losers. So a clear-headed goal, and then focus on the capabilities that really make a difference, which, you know, really to, for B2B, and this is all B2B, by the way, the research, it's really that front end and getting customer needs figured out. Mm. And by I, the I, way, I, th 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 let me just add one thing. It, this shouldn't surprise us because for over five decades, research shows the number one cause of new product failures is inadequate market analysis. So it's not like this should be a big surprise at figuring out customer needs is where the action is. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jan. No, well, uh, two things. I mean, uh, first one, I think I really like this, how you, how you framed that, that all the, I mean, there is monetary stuff, right? I mean, if we're in B2B, we want to make money. So that's, yeah. that's what a business is. It, it might not be the sole purpose that we have, but, but it, it is a lot of, about that, but it's a result. It's a yes. result of something else. So I, I love how you kind of, just, it's not the goal, but it's a, it's kind of the reward that we get at it's the end, but it's yeah. not the treasure chest. Like it's not, so that we might be rewarded by, by financial incentives and so on in the end, but it's not what, if that becomes the goal, you start doing very, very different things. But if, yeah. if the customer need and, and really serving your customers, if that is the goal that completely changes, I mean, you go away from all these simple, I mean, you can get growth by just cutting costs. Yeah. Can you think On the of paper any... that gets you growth? I mean, right. you can do that. That's right. I mean, can you Up think of any corporation in the, on the planet and think of the founder? It could be Henry Ford. It could be uh, Jeff Bezos. Think of any founder in the world. 
Did they, did they wake up in the morning and say, my goal is to make as much money and make my shareholders happy? No, they figured out what their customers needed and they had this passionate heat seeking missile intensity to satisfy those needs. If you have this as your goal, understand and meet customer needs, then the financial results will follow along like a bunch of little goslings after their mother goose. That just happens, <laughs> but that shouldn't be the main goal here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and, but I think the second point, and I, I wonder if you would, you would agree, I'm not so sure, but in a sense, yes, that's, I mean, probably we're in the wrong room. For all of us, this might be obvious, but I think this understanding customer needs is largely that is very difficult because we, we didn't really have a process. For a long time, we didn't know yeah. how or what, like, or, or maybe even if you somehow had the gut feeling, I, I need to understand my customers better, but, but, but what does that mean? How do I do this? And we lack a certain, well, maybe, I don't know, do we lack a skill, a process, but we didn't know how. Yeah, well, that's, that's where I think Scott and I get excited. You know, our mantra is we, we like to provide coaching, but also tools. And sometimes it's software, it's e-learning, mm -hmm. it's a lot of different tools. But, and we even do things like after the team is done, they can press a button and it creates a PowerPoint presentation, right? So our, our mantra is let's do everything for these really, really busy teams so they mm. have the time to do only that which they can do. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. you never would get a hired gun to drop in, parachute and interview customers. There might be some cases where that's important, but in the B2B world, you need to develop these skills yourself. It's a competitive advantage. So we yeah. want B2B engineers and chemists and marketing people to really own these skills and really understand them. But what we don't want them doing is wasting their time coming up with their own methods and processes and PowerPoint slides and figuring out four ways to do it wrong before they figure out the one right way. So, you know, our goal is to help them develop the skills and tools and methodology as efficiently as they possibly can. And then let yeah. this turn them loose. And it's pretty exciting, frankly, when they get there. <laughs> it's nice. It seems like also you're motivated by what was the, what was the mantra? Understand your understand, understand the needs and, and then meet, meet the <laughs> yeah. Understand and meet customer needs. And the reason I put that in there, you could just say meet customer needs. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the reason I put understand and meet customer needs is there. There's two different operations here. Okay, so the understand part. Let's say you were um, the CEO of a company and you said, which am I going to focus on first? Am I going to focus the understand part or am I going to understand the meat part? Mm. Well, if you decide you're going to focus on the meat part, then your job would be go out and hire a bunch of scientists that are 20% brighter and hire a bunch more of them. I'm not sure that's going to get you where you want to go as efficiently as you focus on the understand part where most B2B companies are doing far, far less than they can. Scott and I did a little, we did this research on B2B VOC skills earlier this year. And when you go through the numbers, it's very easy to get a 30 fold return on investment for training your people in how to do the front end. And the initial reaction I would have if somebody told me that is, well, you've got to be fudging the numbers. <laughs> how can you possibly get a 30 fold ROI on something? And my answer, it took me a while to figure out, I kept checking my numbers. Here's the answer. The answer is you're already spending millions or tens of millions of dollars on meeting customer needs. 
all you got to do is aim those massive resources a little mm. bit better and you have just overwhelmed your training investment. And so that's why I like to break it into understand and meet. And let's focus yeah. on the understand unless we're already doing this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, no, sorry, go on, Scott. I, I was just going to say that it's interesting how, you know, companies, they don't mind spending you know, millions of dollars on tooling or on this and that. And it's just accepted. That's just part of R and D. It's just accepted as almost like you're counting on getting lucky, which is, it seems like a terrible yeah. strategy. I, I, I want to go, I love, I want to go back to your point about capabilities. I think that, I mean, that is such something. I think that is tremendous advice um, for that, for that new CEO. It's funny. I was just giving a presentation recently and somebody asked me, well, how would jobs be done? Go after complete white space. So if your company has no capabilities, no in anything at all, how would you go after it? And uh, they were wanting some examples. And I said, you don't go after it. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right answer or wrong answer. That's my answer. It's like, you don't do it. You're always, you're building off some base of something, you know, uh, it's going to rarely be a great business decision to completely be, just ignore your brand, your distribution, all your advantages yeah. and just do something out of the blue. Yeah. Um, I don't think they like my answer, but I, I like the idea. <laughs> but it's a good one. But you know, your idea about climbing the mountain, I think really helps to explain a lot in that there's, um, there's consequences for not being, there's consequences, like Jonathan said, you'll get results. Uh, you know, there's consequences for a t trying something that's beyond your capabilities and it could, could be ugly, might not be what you expect. And if we just yeah. continue with that metaphor, you know, if we're going to have goals, maybe the goal should be, you know, what, what, like if you were to stick with that training one, well, my goal for today should be to eat these types of foods, to do these exercises. Uh, that, yep. My goal should be just a much a shorter, my goal should be a, to attain those capabilities. Uh, and then hmm. from there you could do, you could do lots of things. Yeah. I sometimes challenge people because I, I, I'd like to hear this. Maybe some of our listeners will, will make it drop a note. Can we think of any endeavor, any human endeavor, where the winners, the champions, the successful, did not focus intently on developing their capabilities? I, I, I can't think of any. You know, the I'm closest, still struggling. The closest thing that occurs to me is like a lottery winner. You know, they, yeah. just, they just, but that's obviously luck. And then I'm not an expert on this, but it's my understanding there's a pretty decent percentage of those who lose all their money, completely lose they it do. all, uh, because they didn't develop the capabilities model. of managing <laughs> finances. And so they, even when it was literally just handed to them, they, yeah. they, they couldn't, uh, they still lost, if you will. They actually, some studies say they, they not only do they lose what they won, but they are in worse position relationships and otherwise they wish they would have never won. That's not true for all. But certainly yeah. anything that we that is not out of the complete realm of luck, you know, I mean, a Jeopardy winner, a singing star, I mean, it just goes on and on. They worked on their capabilities, you right. know, but maybe the only exception is the business world. Let's work on the results really hard and let's hit the reset button next year and start all over again. Well, didn't work out too well. But I just listening to you talking right now, maybe, maybe I'm completely off, but maybe it even takes kind of, it takes the prior realization that this is a skill. To, it's a skill that you can learn. Yes. So exactly. maybe we, a lot of us, or a lot of us, whoever us is, but a lot started off with the idea that innovation is exactly luck. 
is exactly. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk and I fumble around and then by some kind of miracle or, or whatever accident, I figure out the best blah, blah, blah. And some inventions, I mean, they happened like this, but, yeah. but maybe it's the image that we have of innovation that it, it, it is not a skill. It is not something that we can learn, which, which is, yeah. is what we're really up against. Yeah, I mean, almost when you look at almost any innovation that matters, it was preceded by huge amounts of learning that took place first. It may have yeah. been in that, that same area or it may have been in a different one. A lot of trial and error, a lot of experience, a lot of failures, you know, we learn from our failures. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you can get lucky every now and then. And I, I did get lucky yeah. in that lab, you know, trying to create um, um, a water-based thickener that didn't need much stirring because it was really, it was like lumpy gravy, you know, but believe me, I tried dozens and dozens of other things before we got to that one. And yeah. so I think that's the case for most, innov most innovators. Yeah. So what's next for Dan Adams? What are you excited about over the next year? You know, you and I've talked about this a little bit, Scott, but the number one difference when we work with a new client between success and failure, there are different grades of it in between there, is really leadership and so of the company, right? And when we get a build, what we call a builder, somebody who really wants to build something, like the same mentality as the founder of that company has, we are, it's Katie bar the door, you know, we are off to the races, we're hugely successful. But what we've learned is, you know, we can train all these people, but we shouldn't just expect that the business leaders get it, right? They have tremendous pressure on the short term and I empathize with them. So as you know, we put together 50 videos, just two minutes each, that's not too painful. And everybody can watch them, um, but we've especially targeted them for leaders. And they can have one per day for 10 weeks or one per week for a year, <laughs> drip, 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 right? <laughs> but we wanna change their way of thinking. So mm. the thing that you and I are thinking, Scott, the last frontier for the AIM Institute when it comes to the implementation of blueprinting is how do we get to those leaders and take them to a new level of thinking? How do we get, and they're not all going to be builders and we're not going to win in all of them, but the ones that have that desire in their heart that really want to build something of significance, how do we equip them? How do we help them get past the, uh, some of the dangers of, of near-term you know, financial pleasing the shareholder? That's the, that's the last frontier for us. And that's what we're working on now. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. I've got one final question. John or Jonathan, you guys have anything else? Well, I, I just wanted... I did have a question, but I'm worried it might take us off on a, on a tangent. Um, <laughs> so I can ask it and we can see if we want to answer it or not. Yeah, so it's about something I've been thinking about, about myself. It's just been running through my head for the, the, some, some time, which is the following. Um, we talk about understanding the customer needs and understanding their problems, et cetera. And what I was wondering is, um, then of course you need to go and build something, build a product, a service, but often through the act of building a product or service, then you're gonna create actually new problems. And I'm kind of wondering how that all fits together. So I give you mm -hmm. give an example. 
um, you know, you have some, uh, some machine, some fridge, let's say a mm-hmm. fridge. And uh, the problem, you know, is that you, you want your fridge to help you with um, filling itself up or something, filling it up. So you have mm-hmm. some kind of connected fridge and it's all great, but unfortunately, through this new functionali- functionality, you're actually creating all sorts of new problems that appear. So, mm-hmm. so now you have this new you have this new fridge with new functionality and new problems. What happens if the internet connection goes down? What happens if uh, you know? I mean, I've I, I yeah. not thought about that specific example, but my question is: there's kind of a feedback loop between the problem if we talk about problem space and solution space there's this kind of feedback that goes so it's not just that you have a a fixed problem space and then you'll kind of just match up a solution to to that problem space but actually through creating the solution you're you're impacting Mm -hmm. and modifying the the problem space too well, that's a very and good point. I don't really have an answer to that, but I, I was it's just something that I've been wondering about. I wondered if yeah, uh, anyone well, had it. It's a, it's a very good point. I think there's two things to, to help us with that because it's a very real problem. The, the first one is when we get these outcomes, it may have dozens of outcomes, okay? So we're, if you arrayed them on a matrix where you had importance on one scale and satisfaction on another, you could imagine these little bubbles on any of those corners, okay? So let's get rid of two corners right away. If it's not important, we won't worry about it, okay? But it leaves us with two very important corners, yeah. The one corner is the one I, excuse me, talked about earlier, something that's important that they're not getting today. Ah, that's what they might pay as a premium. But the other one, which you're alluding to here as well, is something that's important that they're already getting today. So we don't want to ignore those. We want to make sure we understand what they're getting today that they want to keep getting so we don't lose something in our new innovation. And then we also hopefully will have something that is important that they're not getting. So we want to keep both those in mind. So that's the first thing. But the second one, I think you're alluding to this one all as well, is we don't want to just stop and say we took a snapshot picture of what the customers wanted at the end of front end now we're going to go away into our deep recesses. So I think this is to your point, Jonathan, we need to keep the dialogue going. We need to keep engaging them. Hey, we're thinking about this. What about this? You know, we, we maybe have a lead customer or two uh, that we can work with very closely on this thing. So we do need to just not move away from that customer interaction. We need to stay in touch so we don't slip up and create a new problem that we didn't know about. Yeah. Good. That's very good. I like it. <laughs> All right. One final question is kind of different, but then you know how Google has these like unique messages, like each day or not every day, but yeah. one day sort of unique things. If they were to let you add any message you wanted on that page <laughs> one day for the whole world to see, what would you put up there? Wow. For one day. Go to the abc2.com. That'd be a good one. For the, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> click here <laughs> for a consultation with our very own Scott Burleson. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I, I mean, I think I would go back to that goal of understanding and meeting customer needs. I, I, I the more I'm at this, I mean, I'm, I'm very passionate about the training and the methodology and all of this. 
But I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in how do we get companies thinking differently about their mandate? Now, there's a lot of good stuff happening. People are moving away from just shareholders and they're talking about stakeholders and all these other things. But, and I don't think I can maybe get this, I, maybe, I'd, maybe I'd put up Peter Drucker's quote, if, if you'd let me put that one up. And, and that would be, uh, there are only two business functions, marketing and innovation, all the rest are costs. So I might put that one up there to get people's attention. And then when you think about marketing and innovation as the only business function and everything else being a cost, it really takes us back to market-facing innovation. That's what we got to focus on. If we're interested in strong organic growth, it just keeps coming back to market-facing innovation. I did a webinar yesterday, Scott, and the last question in the interview was, well, could these methods apply to that book called The Disciplines of Market Leaders by Tracy and Wersima, who and I, I know Fred, a great guy, you know Michael, a great guy, uh, where they said there are three ways of winning, right? Customer intimacy, operational efficiency, and product leadership. Could these interview methods, I said, yeah, they could be used. But I said, but why would you want to make anything other than product leadership your main goal? I said, Booz Allen has done the research and they originally started with those, but they realized the real winners were focusing on creating new products. I said, if you focus on operational innovation, it's a race to the bottom. You know, if you focus on customer intimacy, doesn't matter how friendly your salespeople are. If a competitor comes up with a product that helps your customers compete more effectively, they're not going to buy from you anymore. So, you know, in the long term, it is truly market facing innovation. There's our Google market-facing innovation. I love it, market-facing innovation. And to that that question, yeah. you know, they still need to un- they still need to understand and meet customer needs. They they still need to build products. They need to understand and meet not customer needs if they're going to have that customer intimacy. And guess what? They still need to be operationally excellent. Uh, there's there's nothing exactly. There's nothing that doing yeah. that that's going to keep you from being operationally excellent. I mean that. Um, so it's. So that, yep. that was a great answer. All right. Yeah. Well, Dan, I would click that. What's that? <laughs> I would click on that. Click. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. Before we wrap up, Dan, anything else you'd like to let folks know about? No, I think this is great. You know, I know you guys are focusing on jobs to be done. So maybe I'll just bring that in just very quickly. It all starts with understanding the customer's job to be done. A lot of teams, you and I have seen this, Scott, they start with my product idea. And that's okay to have a concept, but if you're gonna do this customer insight well, start with the customer's job to be done and then understand all those outcomes within that job to be done and zoom in on the ones that are important and not satisfied. So it does start with JTB. It's job to be done is the beginning of the whole process. One of my favorite things you would say with that, like if you have a product idea, it's not like an evil thought or anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's not. (laughs) All right. Fantastic. Well, awesome. Uh, Thank you, uh, Dan Adams, so much for spending time with us today. I think you've shown us one of the great secrets to success, in my opinion, is your optimism. I'm a big Churchill fan. Churchill said, I'm an optimist. It does not seem to be much use being anything else. And I can tell you, you're a great example to me daily, and I'm blessed to be able to work with you at AIM. And with that, that concludes today's Product Quest podcast. Please send any questions or comments or ideas for future shows to us at productquestpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, guys.
Well, that was fun, Dan. Thanks. So Thank much. you. Thanks so much. Very much. Oh, that was very engaging, you guys. Really great questions and comments and so forth. That was a lot of fun. I had my question number one, number two, number three. <laughs> 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 <laughs>